The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. This week we are memorizing a new verse. We've been going through 2 Timothy, and just after Paul had said, uh, for God to get, not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. He then says, so don't be ashamed of the gospel, and don't be ashamed to testify about the Lord or about me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. And then he adds, by the power of God. That's the end of verse 8, and we'll continue on with this journey. Thank you for those of you who are uh, choosing to memorize this with us. We have been seeing in Mark that Jesus is a servant. Again and again and again, he is described as the servant. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I wonder today what your feeling is about expectations. What kind of expectations do you have? In the transitional sentence in preaching, the key word today is three expectations. So it's good to ponder this. I went out on the internet and I began a chat with uh, the internet about expectations. And this is the definition they gave. Expectations refer to the anticipation or belief that something will or should happen in the future. It's the feeling of looking forward to an event or outcome. Now, we're going to learn in the text today that there's not just good things that we expect to come, but tough things, difficult things. They, too, are predicted and seen in the life of our Savior, and that's what we're going to see. The sermon title today is Critics and Criticism, and February's theme will be highs and lows. Unfortunately, we begin with a low. And we are now in Nazareth, Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's the wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Hmm. Quite a text. In Mark 6, 1 to 6, are three expectations you should have when you serve the Lord as Jesus did on the earth. The first You can serve the Lord at any time in any place. The second, you will be criticized when you serve the Lord. And you can address your critics with grace and truth. That's probably the application part that comes at the end. 
But let's begin with the first expectation. You can serve the Lord at any time and in any place. He's there and it's his he and his disciples. So as he shows up in his hometown here, he shows himself to be a rabbi. He has people who are already following him. They've left everything to follow him. And, and so it's a bigger group than just the 12 apostles. And it's in his hometown, which we know to be Nazareth. Now Nazareth, if you see on the map, is at the lower left-hand corner Capernaum, where he had been before, is up on the upper right. It's a, it's a distance of 29 miles, and of course, he didn't take a cab or an airplane. He walked and journeyed as he went to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is a small place. Um, older estimates were that it's only a town of about 200 people. More modern archaeology has discovered perhaps a larger place, maybe as many as 1,000, but that's still small. It is very insignificant. It is not mentioned by Josephus, the Jewish historian. It isn't mentioned in any of the rabbinic writings of the Talmud or the Mishnah. It's just a small place. And it's interesting that the Savior of the world had Nazareth as his hometown. It had been his parents' hometown before that. You know that. Now, here's an interesting thing. They discovered in the archaeology that there is no human excrement in the soil. In other words, they didn't use human excrement to fertilize their crops, which was the strictest idea of the Essenes, in fact. Uh, so it must have been a pretty strict town. It must have been. But you remember, Nathaniel, when he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he said, can anything good or beneficial come out of Nazareth? So that's what it was like. Just a small, small town. This happened on a Sabbath day. It's the day of worship. He had been in this synagogue many times. He grew up in the town. He attended the synagogue many times. And this time he is asked to teach. And so what he's doing is teaching. 17 times in the Gospel of Mark we see Jesus teaching. And teaching is an important uh, verb in the book. There's a large crowd there. Many are amazed or overwhelmed by what he is teaching. Because he taught with authority. He didn't quote other rabbis. He, he teaches with authority. He just speaks and it is the word of God. You might remember that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, listen, it's not just what you hear, it's what you put into practice that's like building your house on the rock. And that's what you're to do with his teaching. Now in Luke chapter 4, this is very interesting, Luke chapter 4, there's a similar incident. Now, commentators will debate it's the same incident. If it isn't the same incident, because Luke kind of puts it right after the temptation, maybe it did happen twice. If it did happen twice in Nazareth, it's very, very similar. And, and if that did happen, it's kind of sad because they didn't learn much. All right. If the first time he came to the town of his hometown and taught and they had this reaction, they have it again. Or perhaps it is only one incident. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. They glorified him, which is a, a great response. 
He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or the Lord's grace. And it's amazing that he says this. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, today. And they all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They all testified. And they were amazed. And they began to be amazed by him in his hometown. Now, we're impressed that the servant is on mission always. We're impressed that even when he goes to his hometown, he's still serving, he's still ministering. And we're all ministers. Did you know that? You know, you have a few pastors around here, but we're all ministers. We all serve the Lord. We've said this so many times. Last week we ended by saying, God's at work in us and he wants to work through us. It's the same message. We're all ministers. We all have a ministry. And this is what it's said in Ephesians that Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Ministry. We're all ministers. And we need to recognize that and and give thanks to God for that. We can minister for God anytime at any place. Ministry just doesn't happen on Sunday in this building. It happens on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and wherever. Our church is all over the place. And we're still serving the Lord. And that's what we should be doing. So, you can serve the Lord at any place at any time. But you will be criticized when you serve the Lord. This is a guarantee. Satan opposes the work of God, and he'll do anything he can to stop God's work. This day in Nazareth begins with questions. I notice it doesn't seem like they're looking for an answer. They're just questioning. They're just raising their doubts through questions. Reminds me of Satan's attack in Genesis 3. Did God really say... You're not supposed to eat any of the fruit from any of the trees. That's not at all what God said, but it began with a question. And um, they're questioning about his work. Where did he get these things? He didn't study with any of the rabbis. When did he go to school? I mean, he was in my classroom, you know. I, I saw him. And what is the source of this wisdom that he has? And they're acknowledging that he's doing miracles. I mean, mean, they say that. But what are the remarkable miracles he's performing? Listen, you got the power either from God or from Satan. 
You remember earlier, uh, we saw this in chapter 3, the teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem to investigate this, this new guy, Jesus, and they concluded that he was filled with Beelzebub, the devil, the lord of the flies, that he was doing this through the power of, a, of an idol. And Jesus very sternly said, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're saying that what I'm doing that's of God is of Satan. Be equally blasphemous to say what Satan does is God's doing. There's a lot of debate going on. But miracles continue to be done through his hands. <laughs> the power keeps going out from him, as we saw with a woman who was healed in the crowd. They also question his identity. Isn't this the carpenter? Now, very interesting, the Greek word carpenter primarily means working with wood because that's what they had, but it also can mean working with stone and some other things. So it's almost like he was the handyman. And if he's a handyman in a small town, they all knew him, didn't they? They all, they all looked to him to help them fix stuff and repair things. And then they talk about his family. They go, now listen, wait a minute, he's Mary's son. Now, probably they say it that way because Joseph had died. That's most likely the case. And so they identify him as Mary's son. But then they identify his brothers. And you might remember that his brothers earlier in Mark thought he was insane. And John tells us they didn't believe until after the resurrection. But in the list, James and Jude, or Judas here, both wrote letters that are in the New Testament. James became a leader of the church in Jerusalem, and, and Jude likewise. So his sisters are there too, and they say it in a way that sounds like they're probably married. Now, wait a minute, this is all his family. Familiarity, we say, leads to contempt. And we say that sometimes, don't we? And that appears to be the case here. But their knowledge of him is superficial. There are so many people who heard a college prof say this or that about Jesus and believe that more than what it says here. And they, and they wrote him off. They just don't, they don't, they think he's insignificant. It's funny how things that can be very significant, we appear rather insignificant. The next time you're signing your name at the DVD, DMV, or another U.S. government office, you probably won't notice the black pen in your hand. It, after all, is exactly like the dozens of other black pens you've used in post offices and courthouses and other buildings throughout your adult life. You certainly won't think there's much of a story behind the modest implement that likely as not is chained to a well-worn desk you've been waiting to stand at. But like everything, those pens have a story. For over 40 years, those skillcraft pens have been assembled by blind factory workers in Wisconsin and North Carolina. They must meet rigorous government specifications to write continuously for a mile. <laughs> and within temperature swings from 40 below zero to 160 degrees above Fahrenheit. The original design, brass ink tube, plastic barrel, not shorter than four and five inches, ball of 94% tungsten carbide and 6% cobalt has changed little over the decades. It costs less than 60 cents. The standard length of the pen has helped lost Navy pilots navigate by map. 
Stories say that the pen can be used as a two-inch bomb fuse <laughs> or for emergency tracheotomies. It can write upside down. The pen has a rich, fascinating history woven together with war, peace, postage, bureaucracy, spies, work, and play, and you'd never know it to look at it. You see, that's what kind of happened in, Jerusalem, in, in Nazareth that day. They, 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 they thought they knew who Jesus was. But they took offense at him. And a very key word in the text. They took offense at Jesus Christ. Their amazement led to rejection and offense. It's the Greek word scandalazo. And we do get our word scandal from it. But the English word scandal, according to the dictionary, is an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong and causing general public outrage. The Greek word means to be caught in a trap or to slip away, to apostatize, to run away. It's a very strong word. Jesus used it in the parable of the soils when he said that shallow soil, when persecution comes, they fall away. And he'll use it later. In fact, when we get to Mark chapter 9, we're going to see it's a theme of that whole chapter is the whole matter of people falling away. Now, you know, Simeon, just after Jesus had been born and he met Jesus in the temple, you remember, it's a very dramatic story. And Simeon blessed his parents, and he said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This was his destiny. This was his calling. There would be those who would fall away. Paul says the gospel is scandalous because people reject it. They refuse to believe it. John writes that um, when you hate people, you're showing that you're already a victim of this scandal. And he says, we had some people that were with us, but then they left and they showed they weren't really among us. They went away. And you see, this is a scandal. This is what has happened here. There will always be critics. In the Luke passage, Jesus is almost thrown off the mountain because of the scandal, because they were so offended by him. But he slipped through the crowd because it wasn't his time yet. If you live on the applause of others, you will die on their criticism. Just remember that. There are going to be critics. I, I, I urge you to just keep it simple, all right? Just keep it simple. Please the Lord. Just live your life to please the Lord. Whether people understand it or not, keep a clear conscience with God and others and live for the Lord. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. We make it our goal to please him. Whether we're here on the earth or we're there in heaven, we're just going to please God. That's what we're going to do because you know what? We're all headed to the Bema seat when the real truth will be known and it will really be seen. And so just live to please the Lord. There's going to be critics when you serve the Lord. It's going to happen. But please him. Now, this is the most important application when we get to the third point here in verses 4 to 6. You can address your critics with grace and truth. 
They made some statements about him. Jesus made some statements about them. A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives, in his own home. This is a quote almost of some of the things that Greek and Roman philosophers said. The Old Testament prophets have been rejected. His words are similar. Jesus expanded it by saying, There are three levels of rejection in your hometown, your own relatives, and even in your own home. It's ironic that those who knew him so well or thought they did reject him. Uh, Let me tell you a little story about this guy. Elvis Presley used to frequent Little Thompson's Steakhouse in Tennessee. He was good friends with the owner who used to give him free food before he was famous. One night when he was at the height of his fame, the steakhouse held the ultimate Elvis Presley impersonator contest. A large crowd arrived, including Elvis Presley himself. Elvis decided to take part and sat quietly at the back. You know what's coming, don't you? Uh huh. Elvis said confidently, I'm going to mash this. But the owner was a little worried that the place would go crazy if everyone realized it was really Elvis. When his time came, he sang Love Me Tender to the polite polite applause of the crowd, and he came in third. (laughs) There's Jesus Christ in his hometown of Nazareth. And they acknowledge that he has incredible teaching ability and is performing miracles, and yet they reject him. But he keeps serving them. I love this. How are you going to deal with your enemies and your critics? You're going to serve them. He could not do any miracles there. It's it's a double negative. It's really a strong statement in the original. Except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. Hey, listen, that's pretty good for the person that got healed. Right? But it was limited. It wasn't that he had lost any power. He's still fully capable. He's the God-man. He has all the power necessary to heal them all. But their lack of faith restricts his activity. In uh, Luke, he says, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what you have heard we heard, that you did in Capernaum. So again, we're not sure whether this happened first or whether it's the same event, but the lack of his power and miracles is a sign of God's judgment on them, that they're rejecting him. And quite frankly, he's shocked by it all. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Listen, do you ever get shocked by people's unbelief? You sometimes just, man, how do they not see this? He goes on in Luke chapter 4, and you can read it for yourself, but he talks about three Gentiles who in the Old Testament got miraculous healings. It was a sign of judgment. I like the way Michael Card says it. 
of all he understands, of all that he knows, Jesus is still astounded that the people he has known all his life refuse to believe. Indeed, only two things that ever amazed Jesus, faith or lack thereof. Hmm. Jesus taught us to love our neighbors. He taught us to love even our enemies, right? So even if you're the victim of criticism, he still spoke the truth in love. He spoke the statement. And he still served. He did all that he could. Listen, your enemy today might become your brother or sister tomorrow. You know, that, that could happen. And so keep serving. Keep doing what you can as you serve the Lord. And you're going to be shocked. <laughs> and expect that too. It's going to happen. So, further um, investigation about expectations says, in summary, expectations encompass both the hopeful anticipation and the degree of certainty we attach to future events. I'm telling you today, I'm concluding with this statement. Expect to serve the Lord as you encounter criticism and respond as Jesus did. Dear Lord, thank you for teaching us so much in this short historical account of your visit to your hometown of Nazareth. Lord, we are amazed at how you keep loving us. Even if we criticize or are offended by you, you keep drawing us back, drawing us back, drawing us back. And we are so blessed, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that those who are enemies today, as we once were, will become brothers and sisters by faith in Jesus. Oh, we ask you, Lord, to give us the persevering faith to keep serving, to keep stating the truth in love. Yes, Lord, even when we're shocked. And I thank you, Lord, that you brought us to this hour. You brought us to this text. May you apply it by the power of your Holy Spirit to all who are here and those who have listened online. Thank you, Lord, for a great hour of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand together and we'll give the benediction because we sang enough already. <laughs> May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Amen and amen and amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.